0: Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, my name is Adam Jeziorski and I'm joined once again
1: by my good friend, Josh Stempont. Hello again, Adam. Happy New Year. It's, it's, we're, <laughs> when we're recording this, it's almost February, but uh, I think this is the first one we've recorded since the New Year. I, I, I think so too. The, the,
0: this current arc takes a little bit of time compared to they some do. of the past ones. We're not just uh, riffing on, well, I guess in some ways we are riffing on stuff we know inside out, but uh, or like, at least the last two episodes were, but some require a little bit more um,
1: prep and debate in the run-up. Even those ones. Even those ones certainly did too. Yeah, they just do, and it's a busy time of year, term, all those things. Yeah. So we uh, we're very much focusing on quality and not quantity of our podcast episodes, and and in doing so, we continue with those core reading lists. Uh, number four yeah, of the I'm core m- reading lists, I believe, sequentially. I believe so. Yep, and episode forty-nine.
0: Believe it or not, we've oh, been doing this for a while. Um, so today our core reading list is about using the sediments to reconstruct oxygen concentrations. And I think one of the takeaways would be that oxygen reconstructions are hard. Yes. And I guess maybe we have to once again do a quick recap for, uh, um, I guess even sure. the regular listeners may have forgotten what the deal is with all this has <laughs> okay. been so long. Um, but again, the theme of our current episode arc is core reading lists, where we're developing introductory reading lists for a variety of paleolimnological topics. And in general, the idea is that these are the kind of things that you would put, put together in a short list that you send to a new student, or not necessarily a new student, or a new project, to intro- as to get someone's toes wet. In the greater literature is like a starting point for um, a particular, I don't know, it's not really field, sub, 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 sub field most of the yeah, time. Yeah, just topic. Yeah. Yep. And um, we had some general ground rules, limit the number of re- review articles, uh, try not try to do spread too- Spread them out a little bit out. We totally yep. failed on that one last time. and uh, then- That was, a, that was <laughs> intentional though. And uh, also, uh, the key thing is accessibility, uh, not necessarily foundational texts. Um, You know, ideally, there'd be lots of papers that refer to potential foundational texts um, that you can go and read in on your own uh, or as you dig in deeper. Again, the core example was, you know, if someone is just starting to show an interest in like evolution, for example, you
1: not go, all right, go read the origin of species and then and then we'll start talking about your
0: project. It's like.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. The, the most foundational are not always the most accessible uh, or the more most flushed out. You know, w- w- The other example we often say at the intro here is Watson and Crick's article on the structure of DNA in nature is not, it's a very short little piece. It doesn't give you the full details of the story. So it may be the starting point for that topic but not necessarily if you're trying to learn about it exactly all right and all so- right so oxygen reconstructions in the sediment
0: yeah and i've been involved in a couple of projects that involved uh oxygen reconstructions um you may be familiar with that or like listeners may be, already be jumping to the idea that, okay, we're doing a chronomid episode, um, as that is a paleo indicator we've talked about before in terms of reconstruction oxygen from sediments. Um, and that is true. It's going to focus... To some extent, yeah. Focus largely on oxygen reconstructions. And I've been involved in a couple of projects uh, where we did something like this. And I think one of the first... Um, papers i would say it would both be a you know it's a bit of a curveball and then it's both quite recent in, mm-hmm. relative, in relative terms um and is not a paleo paper
1: yeah that's one of the interesting things about this list is that there are a couple as we go through that aren't truly paleo papers but what i have found is these are papers that are really cited a lot by paleo papers especially considering how new they tend to be yeah and so i
0: you know, in the past, it's like when talking to a new student yeah. about oxygen reconstructions, it's almost an element of it seems rather esoteric uh, in some ways. Initially, it's a little bit different than you know, you know, pH reconstructions. For example, it's like you know, huge amounts of the of the flora and fauna will potentially die as the pH changes too much. And they go oxygen. Yeah. You know, there's periods of time where. Pe- Parts of lakes go anoxic on a natural basis, uh, you know, at the very bottom, and so much more. Um, well, I guess of a gradient that could occur through the water column. So reconstructing it can be difficult. And so the first paper that I would put on this week's list is Guzzo et al. 2017. It's a PNAS paper, uh, and it is behavioral responses to annual temperature variation alter the dominant energy pathway growth growth, and condition of a cold water predator. And so it is a paper looking at lake trout and basically showing that um, in the summer, as oxygen becomes limiting in the hypolimnion and the epilimnion becomes quite warmer, the kind of like safe zone of the lake for these <clears throat> uh, large cold water fish, becomes very limited and totally impacts their general behavior and where they forage and you know they're doing less than ideal things throughout their life cycle to survive
1: yeah they're squeezed thermally and where they can live in the lake that's a very good example uh pretty big paper it i think i'm not positive i haven't gone through the full list but i think this is only the second paper that we've talked about on these core reading lists that won the Peters Award for the best publication uh, by a student in Canada or a Canadian Limnology student. So it won that award in 2017 or 2018, early in 2018. And Adam's paper in Science was the other one on that list. That's how I know for sure that there were at least two. And I don't think there were any others. So I may check in uh, in back. But yeah, I really interesting work. It was done uh, uh, with some data from, I mean, there's a bunch of data in there, but uh, some ELA data. We've talked about the Experimental Lakes area a few times on the the podcast um, in a variety of contexts. So yeah, just a good paper, shows some interesting things and really kind of gets at the so what, who cares about oxygen sort of component of the story and does get cited uh, for a, a wide range of reasons, it seems, not just physiologically about lake trout not just about lake habitat change not just methodologically it's just used in a lot of different contexts
0: yeah and i found it's just a good way to illustrate like the so what problem is definitely a big one and in terms of even just talking to like my parents for example when you're trying to illustrate it it's like you know Chronomids and chronomid larvae, and what kind of conditions they like in, the t- in their tubes on the benthos, doesn't really um, uh, necessarily translate very well to their general experiences. And so, but when you talk about nope, you know, the top of the lake is too warm for the fish, so they avoid it. And the bottom of the lake is uh, nice and cold the way they like it, but they can't actually breathe down there, so they're forced out of it as well. It's like it just, you know, very quickly illustrates why you would want to uh, reconstruct oxygen changes over time
1: for sure it just makes sense and is a easy to explain example but backed up by some pretty cool data all right paper number two one done Yeah, yeah moving on do you have a suggestion josh uh so when we first so i unlike adam have not done a lot of work related to oxygen reconstructions, uh, coronamid based or not in paleo. So as is often the case, my first interest in a topic uh, is sorted out by pulling out that most critical of tomes, small 2008 JPS's uh, little textbook on paleo-environmental perspectives. Uh, and when I pulled up the oxygen chapter, the very first time or the, the, I'm not sure it's an oxygen ch- chapter, but the first time oxygen is mentioned. The first reference about it is a paper by Rob Macarthur from 1966 in the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society of London series B biological <laughs> sciences. So old enough that it was before it was renamed proceedings B. Uh, and that paper is called some chemical observations on post glacial lake sediments. Um, so uh, I don't know that we should choose that paper, but it I is the first say, time it comes is, up.
0: Hi, <laughs> it's like flag on the field, flag on the field. <laughs> this is being disallowed. This is totally flies in the face of the kind of um rules
1: I just described. <laughs> yeah, it's like
0: fifty pages. Fifty-three pages. It's like more like a book than a paper. Um and Yeah, it is.
1: uh... (laughs) All right. So it's not very. But let's give it an honorable mention that it is one, as far as I could find, it's one of the earliest attempts to uh, use sediments to reconstruct oxygen. It was using metal ratios, iron, manganese, metal ratios. So very different from what we'll Well, continue to talk about. Um, So,
0: yeah, definitely interesting as a, you know, so what? forty. Mm -hmm. almost 60 years ago now um and And it
1: does uh, one of the best things is it says how much the the addition cost um which i had no idea the units (laughs) that it was in 18 shillings i mean i've heard of it from like oliver twist or whatever yeah but But it is pre
0: Um, predates uh decimalization
1: in the united kingdom
0: which is when they converted from Shillings to, or well, from pounds, but the and went to, one hundred pennies to the pound instead of it twenty shillings, eighteen shillings,
1: something like that. No idea. But anyway, it's pretty we interesting. Did, we did the math, and that came out to twenty four dollars uh, Canadian, in modern money. uh So, so that's how much it would have cost to get this edition or or, or article. I'm not sure which it is. I think it might be the article. Yeah. Uh, Little digression there.
0: Yeah, which is kind of
1: funny because it's like
0: quite in line with if you were just trying to get a individual article off the internet today it would be
1: Yep. So, I
0: don't know if that is a good Thing or bad? Thing. I don't know. I
1: mean, that, pa- that paper is 53 pages, so you know you're getting a little more like a small book, as yeah. you say. Uh, either way, digression. <laughs> Moving on. N- maybe don't read that paper, but it's interesting to think about where it came from and, and w- how old these attempts are, and how yeah. how long it's been that people have been thinking about oxygen and how important it is.
0: Yeah. So definitely, definitely uh, contextualizes. Um, uh, I guess the amount of time this has been considered, uh, Macbeth. So in many ways, and, um was a pioneer. We would have talked about him in the history episode yep. a little while ago. But yes, not really what I was thinking of when we first kind of kicked around the idea of a core reading list.
1: Perhaps not. So what shall we have for number two?
0: So I was going to uh, switch to another one. So this is out of the Pearl Lab. Uh, uh, clerk Al 2000. So this is in the Journal of Paleolimnology. So a little bit more recent. Only a... Mm-hmm. Quarter century, twenty five year, (laughs) um, and and the title is uh, so Clarkdale two thousand Jopl quantitative inferences of past hypolimnetic anoxia and nutrient levels from a Canadian Precambrian shield lake, and this is uh, an example of a single core study that uses chronometers to examine the history of an anoxia in an Ontario lake, and I. typically flag this one of interest as it kind of predates the transfer functions that would be used today to reconstruct uh mm-hmm. flame weight oxygen for example and instead uh focus on a semi-quantitative variable called the anoxic factor and is sort of a precursor to those ideas yeah yep. and cool. um uh yeah it was like so i still the development of the analytical approaches so in some levels mm-hmm. this is quite similar to a chromed oxygen study you might see today uh, in terms of the presentation uh, stratigraphy um, you know uh, but the, the the anoxic factor is something that is I mean I would have to refresh my memory exactly how it was calculated but is basically um, just more um yeah a semi-quantitative measure as opposed to trying to tell you the actual concentration per se of the oxygen within the water
1: right yeah and was that just because i'm I'm, i've not i'm not familiar with this uh particularly i'm just curious had they just not gotten around to the method i mean certainly the methodology for transfer functions are there there's also a diatom transfer function in this uh, paper that's applied the hull and small one i assume given roland is on the paper as well um but it just hadn't been applied as broadly to the coronamid oxygen part of the story it's so my, interesting
0: well my understanding of this is largely because um kind of alluded to when i'm talking about the guzzo paper but oxygen um is a little bit more um ephemeral uh, and right. changes through time. So, what exactly would a reconstruction be? And so, you're trying to get of does this lake go anoxic in the late fall? Hmm. Um, is kind of what they're getting at. Because if you measure the concentration in the last week of August versus, you know, late October, right. you know, it's like the oxygen when the lake is stratified. I guess we didn't really talk about this off the top, but the idea being that. Um, you know when the lake stratifies and the hypolimnion is no longer has exposure to the atmosphere, no more oxygen is being dissolved into the water, making its way down into the bottom waters. So what is down there from the beginning of stratification is just going to be gradually confused uh, consumed through the summer through the summer season until fall turnover. And so then it's like when you're the vagaries of a lot of this are kick in where you want to measure or reconstruct the minimum oxygen level right before fall turnover but that's going to vary from lake to lake to lake and from year to year to year Mm -hmm. and so these kind of approaches like the anoxic factor um which going into is beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today of how it's yeah. actually calculated. But just that idea that it's like a moving target in many ways, and that led it to being a bit more complicated to attack from a paleo sense than something like pH, where it's like right. we measure the pH of the water, we'll look at the assemblages that are down there, and then relate Optima that way through a calibration set.
1: Right, that makes so much sense. Um Yeah exactly it, it has to do with the timing what it is you're reconstructing and the fact that ph doesn't really change that much throughout the year in comparison to something like oxygen because i believe there is a, a coronamide tran- uh, tp model applied in this paper as well as in addition to the diatom so it's really getting at that oxygen story cool
0: and that leads directly into the next paper which then is quinlan uh in small 2001 um, where they do develop a transfer function to um, um, reconstruct volume weighted hypolimnetic oxygen. And so it's Quinlan and Small, 2001, Chronomid based inference models for estimating end of summer hypolumnetic oxygen from South Central Ontario Shield Lakes. And this is in Freshwater Biology, uh, volume 46, uh, starts on page 1529. And this is describing the initial development of. The VWHO model, so volume-weighted hypolimnetic oxygen. So this is where they've gone one step further um, and incorporated the bathymetry of the lake into oxygen measurements at the end of the summer, trying to ca- capture that minimum value and then calibrate the chronometer assemblages against those values in a in a calibration set to hmm. reconstruct. And only a year. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and only a year later. And, and uh, this is Roberto Quinlan, uh, professor now at New York. And he was also involved in the previous one in the office on the previous mm-hmm. paper as well.
1: And this was during his postdoc that I think he was, I mean, he was probably, it is PhD research, but came out during his postdoc by that point. Very interesting. Yeah. You can see the, um, I don't know, say evolution. It's not really a direct evolution, but the change in, in methodology, uh, and, and as a different way of getting at a similar kind of question. Yeah. And,
0: and there's a bit of a flow there in terms of, um, One goes very much into the other of, you know, a refinement of methodology, I guess. Yep. But it's also in there to give an appreciation, or in the past when we've distributed a list like this to give an appreciation of, you know, the difficulties and getting these numbers that are being calibrated against.
1: And I would assume, I certainly don't know, but quite quickly it replaced the idea of the anoxic factor like you don't see that being applied to, at least in maybe the circle i mean we obviously work closely with john and roberto um so it may just be the the group that you're tied into but uh probably switched quite quickly yeah
0: absolutely and then i'd also oh let's disappear from the list for some reason um add a f- I guess so. That was one, two. That was number three, three. and then in a three B, which is Clinton okay. small 2010. I lost the actual paper though. Okay, and, uh, um, where there was a follow up paper that added chaos to the model to um, improve the model performance okay. at the um, hypoxic. Uh, end of the range so the same same model was expanded with some uh um like an additional um group so it's a a broader midge model includes your chronomid uh assemblage along with uh the presence of k as well or like the um the relative abundance of k in a midge assemblage is then incorporated into the model as well and it's uh,
1: an improved model over time and it it improves the performance of the model for a fairly small number of on taxa added I imagine, I mean, imagine yeah so basically um, it basically works in effectively um, you know the presence of of
0: <clears throat> of some cowbirds like Cabers Americanus yeah. um, that are able to withstand um, hypoxia if not anoxia for low uh, for periods of time. So the presence of them in the assemblage is basically yeah. telling you that your oxygen basically drops to zero over times, And yeah. and so that uh, um, is used to bump up model performance at the low end.
1: That's interesting, that's such a small, I mean, there's obviously a lot of work that goes into getting that, but it's a, in terms of data contribution to the model, it's a pretty small difference. Is it presence, absence, or you know a basic abundance of only one other group yet can tell you quite a bit so it's not always you need thousands of extra taxa to uh to make a difference in the model if they're the right species yeah for the question and it's interesting in that because you know um they're chitinized you would have found them in your
0: always been finding them in your chromatic tr- trays everywhere and it's a case of mm-hmm. you know they were not necessarily initially being looked at that closely and then it's like once you know well, how about we actually track how many of these we find? Because how often, you know, all, on on slides and whatnot, do you see stuff that is not related to what you're looking at? And it's kind of like uh, building building that in because I can't think of too many other examples where you would add another indicated group to um, like a diatom model or something like that. It's like let's add plant stomatosis somehow into our calibration set i don't think of anything similar to that happening very often
1: i I can't think of any i mean we look at some ratios and stuff but they're not incorporated into a training set they would be done separately yeah
0: like the sponge spicules or something like that don't get incorporated into the diatom uh, calibration set at all so or
1: even things that are more close like chrysophytes you know it's a different group Um, whereas these are different groups of midges different habitats but can still tell you some interesting things that's very neat I'm learning stuff in this one, Adam. <laughs> You're not supposed to be learning stuff. You're supposed to be uh, knowing this stuff. Come on. You've got to project no, no, confidence. No, no, no. no, we can always continue to learn. <laughs> Lifelong learner, especially about the beautiful field of limnology. All right. So that was 3B. Let's move on to number four. And I think I picked this one, which is a strange one because I, I uh, don't really know anything about <laughs> beyond what we talked about in what episode was a smidge of midges. That was my exhaustive knowledge on coronals. Yeah, That was a while ago. I don't remember when that yeah, was. Yeah, 36, I think we said earlier. Okay. Anyway. So when I was looking for oxygen coronamid papers, just Google Scholar searching, uh, this one came up a lot. And I then looked, as you often do, at the articles that cite this paper and it seems that since this paper by Brodersen et al came out in 2004 uh it effectively every paleolimnology paper that is based on chironomids and even mentions the word oxygen cites it so I think that makes it a well uh worthy addition to our list so continuing with its information it's in limnology and oceanography and the title is chironomids diptera and oxy regulatory capacity an experimental approach to paleo limnological interpretation so very different we have a lab analysis lab experimental analysis uh, but one that is well directly applicable to paleo limnological paleoclimate types of studies as uh, shown in the title and uh, and we're not in any way affiliated with these these researchers from denmark thinking i think they're danish um, yes but clearly uh informs a lot of the paleo uh oxygen research that has come since its publication yeah because i think have you read this paper i have read this paper <laughs> <laughs> Oh good. <laughs>
0: It's been a while since I've read it in depth, um, but it kind of blows my mind as one of these papers where this is absolutely fascinating, and I'm very glad that somebody did this, And but that would never have been me. Um, but basically, uh, it's an experimental approach, and they basically isolated 16 taxa and then um, measured their respiration in, like custom-built respiration chambers to determine their oxygen uptake. And then Crazy. compared that with the um, the calibration set uh, that they collected of 52 Greenland lakes. And so, um, yeah, so it's kind of experimental yeah. approach to payload. So calibrating the set in a different way um, instead of going – this is the measurements in the lakes, and this is mm-hmm. what we find there. It was more a case of, uh, again, because we said earlier how hard it is to measure the oxygen at the period of time that you might be most interested in. So it was like, all right, let's classify these individual chronomids as, um, what's the term, by their oxyregulatory capacity, and then mm-hmm. go and revisit the uh, lakes to see the assemblages from the um, uh, most oxygen. Oxygen demanding to, you know, most tolerant of low oxygen conditions. And yeah. Um, yeah. And so this kind of, it's just, it's just neat.
1: Yeah. It is just neat. Exactly. I would love to see a picture of these little custom made respiration chambers. There, are, I don't, didn't see one in the paper as I flipped through it, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but it's an, it is just a, as you say, a neat combination of methods uh with a very specific goal to understand the system better uh in order to inform future research which it clearly did because it is cited by every paleo paper uh on coronavirus and oxygen since absolutely
0: absolutely and it's just uh, especially in this kind of list of like showing the range of approaches and data and ways that have been Attempted to just understand this part of limological systems better.
1: Yep. And All right. Let's bring it home. Number five. Number five. What shall it be? This
0: one is falls in the realm of if the, the rest have a very clear kind of, you know, following a development pathway. This one, uh, the final one is a little bit more of a cautionary tale. It's like uh, coming at... Uh, oxygen reconstruction slightly differently. So, this is a um, uh, Stuart et al. from 2013, uh, a paper out of the Pearl Lab group again, uh, in published in JOPL, uh, contrasting the effects of climactic uh, nutrient and oxygen dynamics on subfossil chronometer assemblages,
1: a paleo experiment from eutrophic high Arctic ponds. Hmm. They didn't charge by the number of characters in the title. It's a long one. They did not.
0: And so I think uh, um, we alluded, or you mentioned it in the Clercdale paper. So what was that? Number two. Three? Two? Um, how they're also looking at chronomids as a nutrient indicator. Yes. And so kind of, there's a bit of a, question in some cases of like in certain conditions are the chronomids responding to nutrient enrichment or oxygen depletion Uh, at um you know it's like there's a bit of a push-pull going there because those two phenomena are quite closely related and in most cases yeah exactly yeah um and so you had a case of I think we've talked about before with like the colonial seabirds of like the paired limnological study approach. Um, And they were able to examine two closely um, related lakes um, where um, because they were shallow and had a um, large seabird colony very close by would be both high very oxygen rich and very nutrient rich at the same time
1: mm-hmm. and we're
0: able to tease apart that kind of push pull a little bit because it wasn't right. there or it was um both
1: were high in, in the same um system right break apart the things that generally are locked together low oxygen high nutrients tend to be locked in sync with one another and and co-vary and Lo and behold, if you look hard enough, you can probably find examples where those things don't happen. You may have to go to a, a small pond in the high Arctic that's surrounded by bird nests, uh, but they, they can be teased apart in, in theory.
0: But what they found in practice. was that even though the nutrient levels were essentially off the charts, um, the assemblages were dominated by like cold stenotherms that in temperate regions would be used to identify oligotrophic conditions
1: right and s- so not what you might expect if a model was strongly driven by the total phosphorus yep concentrate and
0: so um yeah and so like the paper basically indicates that when both of these things are in abundance at the same time it's the um uh it's like the oxygen driving the the assemblage more so than the the nutrient availability
1: it, yeah very interesting i I remember this paper when when Emily was working on it it was right as I was leaving um to go to postdoc jules's lab actually uh well Jenny was going to postdoc and Jules's lab but going to ottawa and uh, yeah there was there was quite a bit of of i don't wanna say buzz around this um as it was being put together, but it is an interesting. An interesting testing of a hypothesis a really cool example of how you can do that with paleo yeah
0: it definitely definitely caused uh some some discussion yes and uh yeah and so i think that would be the you know if you're going to put a list together a combination of the why methodological approaches um and a cautionary tale to the application of said methodological approaches
1: yeah, I think this is a good list. And so, it, yeah, so it's maybe one of the more like well-rounded of them, from different aspects. Yeah,
0: and uh, and then I think the one honorable mention I would put on there as a um, a case of, you know, a key key chronometric that I probably looked at more than any other. It'd be a taxonomic key.
1: <laughs> sure, but you don't you don't <laughs> hand that off to be read by someone in advance uh, necessarily. But I, I, the point is well taken. Yes, and so
0: uh, uh, Brooksedell, two thousand seven, the identification and use of palearctic paleoarchaeological larvae in paleoecology. Um, it's a technical guide. I don't even know how you'd go about acquiring new copies of that today i just remember we had a couple i'm not i'm not sure if you but
1: yeah we have one uh if it's still in print but uh i i'm not i'm not positive that emily didn't bring it because she was a postdoc with jenny and it's possible she had her own copy and left it for us so i don't honestly know the answer to that one um yeah interesting Um. And so, once again,
0: uh, this is very much our list. You may disagree. That's fine. We don't care. Um, these are the papers that we would and have send in a welcomes the project type of email. Um, and I think uh, this is where we would normally throw in some anecdotal stories of like things that didn't quite make yep. it into the list. And I think there are a couple of interesting things. Um, especially when you're dealing with model data is um, the phenomenon of when the model data is not included in the paper. I always find that yeah. uh, um, uh, a bit, I don't know. I, I see, I see both um, elements of, uh, sure, you know, wanting to be involved in the application of the model, but then at the same time wanting to model to be as widely used as possible. I definitely had a, uh, yeah uh formative i remember seeing a presentation early in my masters where there was a not even model but it was just data from like a thesis that had been uncovered from like i don't know a hundred years ago but they put the full spreadsheet equivalents of like data tables in the back of the thing when able to revisit it
1: um and i was like you don't want your work to disappear <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, data availability is a discussion more broad than this um, in a lot of fields, not just paleolimnology. And raw data are one thing, but you know the actual models themselves that are built on it, that's another question. Some pla- some people have, div- well, lots of people have differing opinions on the um, procedure for doing those things. And those opinions change over time. The models that were built in the 90s, the avail the just the opportunity to have them available on repositories, GitHub, those kind of things just didn't exist. So uh it has changed. I think you probably find more models are available now. I think in many ways packages in R
0: be a requirement of publication in many a cases. A lot of times it is. Yep. Which is interesting when you're looking at papers from like twenty five years ago of just the you know, the philosophical shift I guess over that time
1: yep yeah for sure maybe that's a topic for another uh, episode but it is an interesting one to keep in mind um, because a lot of the models that are applied for uh, paleo in general are are getting quite old um, and, and that leads into the the next discussion is like how long can we continue to apply models that were built in the 90s early 2000s you know we're get, moving 20 years on since those uh models and in some cases the actual samples for water chemistry for sediment may have been taken some number of years before that as well it might be pushing 30 years of uh of change in that environment so do models age out i would Uh, what does that what does that look like
0: well i think you know this aging out of old data is something we talked touched on in a couple general topics in terms of like led to 10 and then, you know, going back 150 years now, if you're talking about like, it was one thing when we are talking about the 1850s and our region of the world in terms of initial land clearances and stuff. But now like 30 years mm-hmm. later, you're talking about the 1880s and things were, you know, like the changes were underway in many ways. Um, yep. And in the same vein, um, especially when talking about volume weighted hypolimnetic oxygen, the bathymetry of the lake has not changed or in very few cases will have changed over the past 25 years. But what will have changed is the length of the stratification period. Mm-hmm. So um, as uh, summers get longer and the fall turnover is potentially pushed back, you know, maybe uh, on average by, you know, a couple of weeks at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. In some in some cases, um, you know, lakes that did not go hypoxic in the '90s, um, that same amount of oxygen has to last last an extra two weeks now. So, um, yeah, I think in some cases, mm-hmm. if you went and remeasured the oxygen immediately before fall turnover, uh, it'd be, there'd be some differences today, and you know what would changes impact. How would those changes impact the actual calibration model? I do not know.
1: And I imagine at some points uh, that question will be tested explicitly by returning to one of these models and redoing all of the work, not just adding in extra counts and those kind of things. And maybe it has been done in other locations. I don't know that particularly well. But it is definitely an interesting consideration. As you say, climate is certainly changing yes that turnover in the fall was getting later but also the ice probably came off earlier temperatures were hotter production was higher bod is likely higher um so there's a lot going on in a warming lake anything else that jumped out at you as we were working our way through i think prepping for this or the actual discussion
0: yeah i think one last thing that i made scribbles about um and i've lost the, the actual uh Citations now, but I'll include them in the
1: eventual show notes. proud to practice at this. <laughs> um,
0: but uh, no, it disappeared on me. I'm blaming uh, technical mishap. Dog ate my homework. Yeah, it happens. Um, <clears throat> always. But uh, was um, the same idea basically coming out in two different papers at the same time. And so it doesn't necessarily fit within oxygen reconstructions directly so it didn't make any sense within the list but in order to do oxygen reconstructions you need to to characterize chronometer assemblage and there's an obvious question there of because it's a very time intensive um, activity in terms of isolating the chronometer head capsules from the sediments how many do you require to adequately characterize the assemblage Um, and that there were two 2001 papers from two different lab groups both attacking that at the same time and it was
1: interesting eh? uh isabella rocks the lead on one and roberto the other is that that is
0: right sounds familiar and if you can just cover me for a second i can pull up those papers
1: how quickly adam can google away um and this has been done for other indicators, uh, like it's sort of built into the deeper manuals, and there and there was a lot of kind of effort to to determine how much counting effort is needed to adequately characterize the assemblage of, for example, the diatoms. Uh, it's been done for the cladocera, I think we mentioned um, Josh Curick did a similar thing during his time at queen's to consider how many cladocera needed to be uh, enumerated but one of the different things we've talked about and Adam's right it doesn't really fit into this oxen discussion but if you had just a coronamid literature list this would certainly be uh, a good included component is that the the method for identifying and isolating chironomids is quite different so the the picking aspect is quite different than scanning slides like it is for cladocera or uh, diatoms and just based on abundance it uses a ton of sediment when there's not that many you run out you know
0: there's a danger of running out you don't have the ability to just ah just do one more transect or
1: or something like that um or one more i'll make another slide i'll take another aliquot out of my diatom slurry of which i could make a hundred slides if i needed to or something things like yeah, that and so definitely around the same time two key interests
0: in um uh you know quantifying and in two different um lab groups and i uh, very much came to a very very similar answer which is also kind of cool so you don't often see so mm-hmm. it, this is um uh Quinlan and Small in Journal of Paleolimnology 2001, setting minimum head capsule abundance and taxon deletion criteria in chronomid based inference models. And the very, very similar paper is by Isabel Rock um, in Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, and paleoecolo- Paleoecology. How many chronomid head capsules are enough? A statistical approach determine sample size for paleoclimactic reconstructions. Mm, interesting. And these two were submitted submitted to the journals within like two weeks of each other, I think. Or no, no. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, three weeks of each Still other. Still close. Uh, wow. So very, very close. And they both basically came to the general idea that in the vast majority of samples, 50 head capsules was enough uh, in one case to... Um, to obtain a temperature reconstruction similar to one obtained by con- counting 150 more or, or more head capsules. So tripling the effort did not improve model performance uh, very much. And then that- That's good to know. You wouldn't want to go the other way. Absolutely. And then uh, um, the converse was uh, very similar. Um, minimum abundance of 40 to 50 head capsules sufficient for use in inference models. So- Good stuff. And anyway- So it's kind of very much an aside to what we're talking about, but just a neat little kind of methodological footnote to this whole kind of analytical approach.
1: Very good. I think that was a good list. I've enjoyed this one. I did, as I said, learned a few things. And and I like the variety, just the different tacts, and, and all of it linked to one topic.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And that's kind of where...
1: When it's grown out
0: of, it, it's just like,
1: you know, uh, a
0: mishmash of different even types of analyses or topics of study that will all pull together in many chronometric analyses.
1: All right, there we go. Another one in, in the books. Next, next one is, and uh, no, the next one's number fifty. Number 50. Big, uh, big numbers. Uh, we got something special planned for that one. Stay tuned. Uh, keep it secret maybe until um, until then. Uh, do we have anything in the mailbag this month? Uh, <laughs> I did not check today, but as of a couple of days ago, um, the answer was no. So we, we can assume anything is not so pressing that it can't wait until next time. You know,
0: a Cisco analysis um, of our mail suggests that you do not need to check it every single day.
1: Yes, correct.
0: <laughs> but anyway... Uh, once again, thank you for listening to core ideas, the paleo. Oh my goodness. I'm it so bad. The paleo podcast. Uh, if you have a question or a comment or a suggestion for a future show, uh, please send us a
1: note. And you can do so via email. To coreideaspodcast at gmail.com, or you could send them via Twitter. We haven't been very good about checking Twitter. I've kind of left Twitter in general <laughs> personally, but it's still there. Uh, we still check it occasionally, and that is at coreideaspaleo. We do read everything eventually. <laughs> and An archive of our past episodes and show notes is maintained on our website
0: at Um But the link, the easiest way to find the link is just to
1: look up our Twitter bio. That's right. And you can also find it on some of the podcast pages. So if you're on one of those sites, SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get those podcasts, we would be very appreciative if you give us a rating, maybe a five star rating and uh, leave a comment and subscribe. And that's it for
0: today. But we will be back soon ish. To to provide one more core reading list um, related to paleo limnology, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.